0: And we're back to the Zoom calls. But well, we all knew this was coming, though. So, Em, how are things in China? Ni I'm
1: not in China. I'm in the same city as you, just like I was last time.
0: Ah, oh, well, that's a relief. I just used up all the Mandarin I know, apart from the numbers 1 to 10. Uh, but if we're still in Auckland, why are we Zooming? Why? You were the one who wanted a Zoom call. I'm pretty sure that's not true. I have
1: the text messages. Do I need to start reading them out loud?
0: Yeah. Well, no, because... Obviously, those are fake messages that were hacked onto my phone by the Russians, I guess, for an unknown but completely plausible reason.
1: Something's up. You're being held at home again against your will, aren't you?
0: Don't be ridiculous. Who would want to imprison me in my own home, let alone have the nefarious deep state connections to do such a thing?
1: Well, any of the numerous conspirators our investigations have uncovered, literally any one of them. But I'm starting to understand now. This sounds more like the hazing ritual for the
0: latest acolyte, JJ. Oh, come on. What's more likely, that I have other things to get done this evening and I didn't want to lose time commuting to your place and back, or that this JJ, if they even exist, used their Masonic Templar Illuminati connections to confine me to my own residence as a show of power and intimidation?
1: I think you know the answer to that question.
0: Uh, (sighs) All right, but you don't understand. They have two J's in their name. And I only have one. They're literally twice as powerful as me. How does that even work? I I don't have a choice. Now, act natural, because I think they're coming back to check on me.
1: Uh, Fine. Uh, This is the last time I'm bailing you out, though. Ah, so, Joshua, ready to start another perfectly normal episode where everything is exactly as it always
0: is? I sure am. Let's play the theme music like we always do because everything is perfectly normal. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M Denton. and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. It's a it's a special technology episode as we showcase the various new items we've been purchasing with the money generously given to us by our patrons, the best and most sweet-smelling people in all the world. Uh, if you're watching this on video, we, you'll, you'll see the images of our new webcam, so you'll really get to appreciate the greasy sheen of sweat on my forehead as I sit here in a sultry Auckland evening, and if you're listening to the podcast, then you get to hear the the magical new tool that, that Emma's using to record it. It's I, I I haven't seen it with my own two eyes, but I gather it's quite the thing.
1: It's true. It's got buttons. It's got dials. It has things that make me able to censor you. So, Josh, say something. Say something exciting.
0: Um, I, I long for the sweet embrace of death. Uh, which cannot come too soon.
1: And say something about your mother.
0: Uh, my mother is quite a lovely person, actually. No one will ever know. No one will ever know. No one will ever know. Um, yes, yeah, so actually, in all my excitement, I, I probably should do the actual intro and say that I, of course, am Josh Addison and they, of course, are Dr. M. Denton, both of us in Auckland, New Zealand, for the time being. Um, and so we have. West, yeah. Mm. So now we have we have, new, we have new things, we have new technology We have new patron new patrons plural, I understand
1: Yes, so we actually had two people go to the level of pledging Where they get mentioned in the intro to the show So this week it was JJ, but Susan, Susan your time is coming Susan, don't think we've forgotten about you Susan We know about you, we're going to uh, exploit you that's not what I was going to expose you. We're going to exploit expose. and expose you. That's not
0: week. a lot better, but yes, in fact,
1: it might um, actually be worse.
0: Mm. Uh, and now, another another little bit of of interesting admin before we actually get into the episode. You're gonna, you 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 are in the Herald currently, or are going to be in the Herald?
1: So I'm going to have an opinion piece in the New Zealand Herald. I was told it would go up this afternoon, but actually looking at the opinion pieces on the Herald website. All of them appear at 5am in the morning, so I suspect I'm actually going to appear in the digital version tomorrow morning. And I may or may not be in print, because with our weird digital world, sometimes you're in print and sometimes you're not. But I'm going to now be a Herald columnist, although that's kind of a one-off thing. I don't think it's a recurring gig. But the interesting thing about it, guess who asked me to write a column for the New Zealand Herald?
0: Veteran character actor Steve Buscemi?
1: I think it's Buscemi, and no, it was Matthew Hooten.
0: Hoots himself.
1: Indeed. I I was shocked at the time. Mm. I wouldn't say I was dismayed, but I was surprised. But no, Matthew reached out, sa- saying that I'd be the right person to talk about conspiracy theories in the Herald, particularly that malarkey, as Joe Biden would say, that's been going on around January mm. 6th. And so I wrote an 800-word piece, sent it off to the editor. The editor went, this is good, but I think you need to say more. And I said, well, to say more, I need more words. So I've submitted a 1,200-word piece, which will be out in the next day or so.
0: Hmm, very interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Um... Will you be behind the paywall? The opinion pieces usually are, aren't they? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know.
1: I mean, I assume I'm behind the paywall. Although I actually don't think I'm being paid I thought I, I piece, would... So if it's behind the paywall, I'll be very annoyed if they don't actually pay me for it.
0: because uh, I've always assumed, you're, you're an exclusive sort of a person. Your words aren't just to be thrown around willy-nilly to we unwashed masses. So I'd, I'd kind of assumed there'd be some, some sort of gating to to, to prove that only the Worthy should um, be able to hear your words.
1: Insert something we'll about Watergate right here, but I can't think of it right now.
0: Mm. Well, in that case, then, I guess we should actually go on with this episode. So this is... Does this count as an episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre?
1: No, because it's not a masterpiece.
0: No. So so we're reviewing a paper today, but it's not one in the series of sort of the, the corpus of... Uh, philosophical conspiracy theory material, this is a completely different paper altogether. And I think we should leave you in suspense as to what it is until after the chime.
1: Indeed, which I'm going to press the button to play right about now.
0: Now, see, what you don't know is that normally this is all being edited together manually afterwards. We have to stick the sound effects in. But now, as I understand it, all em all has to do is just, like, push a button, and then suddenly the, the noises just appear automatically. It's all... it's. I, I refuse to believe that it isn't magic.
1: I mean, it is going to... So this is, this is our first what we might call live episode, where we're trying Mm. to do it all entirely on a podcasting deck without any editing afterwards. I mean, there will be some editing afterwards. I'll be cutting out some silence at the beginning and some silence at the end. But technically, this is live. This is like live theatre with all of the excitement that comes with it. So before, what you've heard is a podcaster's guide to the conspiracy when it's carefully edited together to get rid of the points in time where Josh says terrible things.
0: Mm. terrible salacious
1: libelous things well Mm. now now we're just going straight
0: just gonna have to leave the libel in it's true Mm. uh
1: let's see what kind of libel we commit when we talk today about a paper by a senior lecturer at auckland university of technology amy baker benjamin which is salient even though it was published back in 2017 because of some things she said recently about outgoing president. Donald J. Trump. But let's let's talk about the paper, and then yes, we can yes. talk about the
0: author. Right. So the paper is called "9/11 as False Flag: Why International Law Must Dare to Care." It were, saw print in the African Journal of International and Comparative Law uh, in 2017. Um, so, yeah, why why are we talking about this today?
1: So Amy Baker Benjamin, as I said, is a lecturer in the law faculty at AUT. She deals largely, I believe, in international law. And she was interviewed before the election and after the election in the U.S. And let's just say it would be fair to say that she doesn't have explicit Trump sympathies, but also doesn't seem to be saying that Trump has done, say, some bad things with the whole election wrangling that's gone on since November. Uh, In fact, when she was interviewed earlier this week, she claimed that the January 6th event, uh, that's the storming of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., looked quite peaceful and said that her son was at the protest and he heard no calls for violence at all. So it does seem as if she has some skew ideas about the Trump presidency, and so I thought, because she's made the news here talking about Trump, it would be quite useful to look at her 2017 piece, which is one of the few pieces in the academic literature which I think can be charitably called a contribution to the 9-11 truth community and search for a reinvestigation of the event of September 11th, 2001.
0: Mm. And yes, it does seem to be a bit, uh, it seems, almost seems to be gaming the system a little bit in that, as we'll see, the paper is in four parts. Um, three of those parts, well, one of those parts is the conclusion. Um, two of them are basically 9-11 truth material, and then only one out of the four is actual talk. actually talking about international law and legal implications. Um, so maybe you should just pile straight into it. And Wait, we'll, so no, first um, of all, let's talk we'll we'll a little bit go. about the
1: journal itself. So the African Journal of International Comparative Law is not a journal I know, but at the same time, I also don't publish in international law journals. It is part of the Edinburgh University Press imprint, so it does actually belong to a university press. It's also not particularly highly ranked. Now, university press in print is a good thing. University presses tend to have certain standards when it comes to its journals, although sometimes those standards do slip, and there are a whole bunch of kind of boutique or niche journals out there which do have a history of bad publication. As far as I'm aware, the African Journal of International Comparative Law is not one of those. At the same time, it's not a particularly highly ranked journal, And that the papers which are cited in it, uh, sorry, the papers which appear in it do not tend to be cited elsewhere. And so I have a suspicion, and I'm going to mark this out as a suspicion, that this is a lower ranked journal that the paper was eventually accepted into. And the reason why I have that suspicion is that, as will become clear in the discussion about this paper, I do not think the paper Is particularly good, and in fact I think the paper commits some egregious errors in reasoning, which is the kind of thing which may have got it moved on from journals higher up the academic
0: rankings. Hmm. And yes, as we'll see, it's It's something of a a 9-11 Truth greatest hits compilation album. We'll be revisiting a lot of topics that we've um, talked about before Um, But to start at the start, section 1, introduction, which is quite a long long section actually um, Begins by saying no matter what one may think about the nature of the attacks that took place in the United States on September 11, 2001, one thing is beyond dispute. Those attacks have provided the legal, political, and moral justification for 16, or I suppose now 20, years of international war. Uh, continues a bit later, each one of these military campaigns and or thrusts is based on the legal authorization and moral dispensation granted by domestic and international authorities in the days following 9-11 to respond to the attacks of that day. And a little lower, We would do well to remind ourselves, however, that this shouldering is only as strong and effective as the claim of self-defence on which it is based. The war on terror is, after all, a war that is claimed to be fought in self-defence. Were this claim ever to be proved false, were it ever to be shown that the United States was not, in fact, attacked by others on 9-11, but rather attacked itself, or let itself be attacked, for the purpose of blaming others and justifying international war, then its war would not be one of self-defence, but of premeditated and carefully camouflaged aggression
1: we've got both hop and Lee hop in that last paragraph. Attacked itself it or let itself be attacked. Interesting.
0: Mm. And that paragraph uh, has a footnote at the end of it. And the footnote contains the definition of what a false flag attack is that she's going to be using. Um, Actually,
1: I'll, I'll read that bit out. Yep. A false flag attack occurs when a country organises an attack on its own citizens and or officials and makes the attack appear to be by enemy nations, political opponents or terrorists, thereby giving the country a pretext for domestic repression and or foreign military aggression. I will use here a broadened definition of the term that also includes foreign attacks that a government knew were coming and could have stopped but allowed to succeed so that the nation would be primed for war. Now Josh, what do you think of that definition?
0: But despite being broadened, it does actually sound very specific. I mean, it, it's quite clearly
1: about nine eleven.
0: It's quite clearly about nine eleven. Yeah, uh, especially the bit about when a country organises an attack on its own citizens and/or officials doesn't like normally. That's not something we'd necessarily say about false flag attacks. And when we get to later on, when she actually starts going through historical examples of false flag attacks, some of them at least are. Not a country attacking its own citizens. They're a country attacking another country, but making it look like someone else did it and so on. So it's um, So it, it's it do, It's not hard to read between the lines of that definition and see nine eleven truth arguments uh, front and center And I, um, I mean,
1: I would just resist the idea that we should include in false flag attacks things that other powers are going to do to you, which you allow to occur. Mm. I mean, that's a bad thing, don't get me wrong, but it's not a false flag. A false flag is pretending that someone else did something you're doing in its most loosest sense. The idea that you allow someone else to do something actually seems like, well, that's not a false flag, that's simply negligence. Negligence is bad politically, but it's not a false flag.
0: Hmm. But so right away we see what kind of is the, the, the tenor of the whole argument, which is this If it turned out that 9-11 was a false flag attack, then that would be a really big deal and would have massive ramifications and would totally undermine the US's justification for a lot of stuff it's been doing over the last 20 years. And that's true. If 9-11 turned out to be false, then that would be true. But when I first read it, and we'll see this going right the way through, the thing it reminded me most of was Pascal's Wager. Um now if you're listening to this podcast you probably know what Pascal's wager is, but but M, just give a give a quick refresher in case anyone isn't sure. What's Pascal's wager?
1: So Pascal was a philosopher. Was he a sixteenth or seventeenth century mind? I've actually completely forgotten Some, where he was. Something like lived. that. Don't know the dates
0: uh, precisely. So
1: and he basically had an argument about the existence of God and whether or not you should believe in God as a rationalist and Pascal's wager is the idea that look you might be inclined as a rationalist to think well there's no good evidence for God's existence but if God does exist and God hates atheists then choosing not to believe in God even if God hasn't provided you with enough evidence for its existence Is going to be a bad thing. You're going to go to hell. In fact it's much better to believe in God, even if it turns out that as a rationalist you don't have any inclination to, because the benefit of belief in God if God does exist means eternal life, and the benefit if God doesn't exist is basically nothing. I mean you may have wasted some time on this whole God malarkey, But when you're dead, you're dead, and it makes no real difference. So Pascal goes, look, according to the terms of the wager, it is better to believe in God than it is to not believe in God because the benefit of believing in God is going to be dramatically higher if it turns out God exists.
0: Mm. And one of the main um, objections people have to that line of argument is that while Pascal was interested in justifying belief in the Christian God, the argument could be used to justify belief in basically anything, any, any God who has the capacity to judge you in the afterlife from any religion, or indeed you could make stuff up, Uh, the, 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 the the, the flying spaghetti monster, you know, you, you could say, well, if the flying spaghetti monster is going to subject you to eternal torture, if you don't believe in it, then you better believe in that, and it sort of, it turns, it kind of undermines the whole thing, and that is what reminded me about this one, uh, made me think of this one, because with the same argumentation, you could basically say we need to investigate anything, because if it turned out that the world was actually flat, th- that would be massive, that would that would invalidate just about all of science, it would be a huge deal, but the fact that it would be a big deal if it were true isn't enough by itself to mean we're actually obligated to investigate it. And yet that seems to be a lot, not the whole of her argument, but that seems to be a large part of it.
1: Yes, and as we'll see later on, there are similar issues that can be leveled against this with the way that she characterizes the situation between the official theory of what happened in 9-11 and her urging for a reinvestigation.
0: Mm. So the, in, uh, the introduction goes on to talk about, but basically say that um, nobody's interested in revisiting the 9-11 investigation, or at least no, no one official, the US isn't and the UN isn't, uh, but then claims that lots of lots of people, though, are talking about the 9-11 uh, investigation and, and want to look further into it. Um, so she says... Uh, over the course of the last 16 years neither the un nor nato has revisited the issue of responsibility for the attacks and this despite the fact that one an impressive body of literature has emerged that challenges virtually every significant aspect of the official account two key members of the united states congress have insisted that the domestic investigations into 9 11 were not credible and indeed were set up to fail by the bush to administration And three, two candidates for the office of US President in 2016, Donald Trump, Republican Party, and Jill Stein, Green Party, publicly questioned the accuracy of the official account, with Stein going so far as to call for a new investigation. There's quite a lot going on there.
1: Now, one thing which this kind of brings to mind to me, and this is not a perfect analogy, but I think it actually does play a fairly significant role in how we kind of talk about the way these things work, is that... What we're seeing here is something which is quite similar to the debates in the whole Shakespeare authorship controversy, in that Amy Baker Benjamin is going, look, there is a debate going on. Some people doubt that 9-11 happened the way that it actually did, in the same respect that people who believe that Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, was really Shakespeare, go, look, there's a debate going on. There are some people out there who don't think it's settled who Shakespeare really was. And because there are people talking about this, we need to investigate this and get to the truth, because if people are talking about it, it's an issue that needs resolution, and it's obviously a matter which is up for debate.
0: Mm. Now, as as far as that impressive body of literature um, that has emerged, the main one she samples the main one she uh, refers to rather, um, is the paper 15 years later on the physics of high-rise building collapses published in neurophysics news in 2016. Now that's a paper we looked at ourselves all the way back in episode 116, Um, and and we, we found it wanting. I think it's fair to say. Um,
1: yes, it was not the best piece of work we've reviewed.
0: On there, was, podcast. there was a lot of the sort of cherry picking, a lot of um, claiming that people who uh, support the official theory were sort of uh, picking data to, to support their preconceived ideas when that's basically what the author of the paper uh, was doing themselves. It, yeah, it, it was. It, go go back and listen to it, episode 116, if you if you want the full deal. But we didn't find it um didn't find it convincing. Um, interesting to see Donald Trump's name show up there. So this is 2016, prior to the election, and both Trump and Jill Stein had had voiced doubts about 9 911. Trump also had, had he at that point started talking about UFOs as well and wanting to get the official story about them, because he did that too, didn't
1: he? Yeah, there was some mention about UFOs at the time, although I can't actually recall whether it was whether it was a big issue. I mean, I remember him talking about the fact that he was asked about 9-11 and did that usual thing that Trump is quite prone to do, which is to go, oh, well, you know, I think we probably should have some kind of discussion about that. Which is what Trump does when he's basically not paying attention to things, mm. but wants to appear that he's he's really taken on board exactly mm. what the person said.
0: Just that sort of non-committal rambling.
1: No, I mean Trump um, does like a bit of the old non-committal rambling.
0: Oh, he does. Um, so the introduction chapter, introductory chapter, uh, continues recent developments suggest that the public at large is beginning to back away from this assumption, the assumption being that the official account is accurate, uh, and that it may be time for scholars to do so as well. And at this point, she brings up the missing 28 pages, which is something else we've talked about. Uh, We talked about it in episode 94, back when the 28 pages, this is the 28 pages that were redacted from the official report. um, They were being talked about way back when we recorded episode 94, uh, where it was sort of assumed the reason why these, pa- these these pages have been redacted was because they relate to Saudi Arabia's role in the September 11 attacks, which America kind of wanted to sweep under the carpet a little bit, I think. for Because it would political be expediency. a
1: diplomatic issue if it came out mm. that the US was supporting a
0: regime which itself had supported the 9-11 attacks. And, uh, and then the 28 pages were eventually released, and we talked about that in episode 107, where it basically uh, they said what everyone thought they were going to say. So it wasn't a, a massive revelation. But um, uh, nevertheless, Amy Baker Benjamin does th- thinks that this is a problem for the official theory, the fact that Saudi Arabia had more of a role. Um, I, th- I think I, I think what she was saying there, and correct me if you had a different impression, was that um, if Saudi Arabia had a role in the attacks and Saudi Arabia is an ally of America, that sort of, that, 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 that draws things into question there. Um, she does say, at the very least, a Saudi role in the attacks would invalidate the core plank of the official account, namely the claim that a decentralized group of non-state actors bent on the most indiscriminate kind of asymmetric warfare perpetrated the attacks on their own and unaided by the resources of any nation state. Now I do recall the twenty-eight papers. There was that one particular line, wasn't there, which it 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 said. I should have it in front of me. I don't have it now. Uh, Basically, it was a really sort of very specific hedged thing that sort of said no one from the government, the Saudi Arabia government, aided the attackers in an official capacity or something. It sort of it, it went to pains to say that the actual Saudi Arabian government didn't have anything to do with it while leaving it possible, leaving it open for the idea that actual members of it acting in, uh, independently could have had something to do with yes, the Yes, it actually States. reminds me
1: quite a lot of the whole John Key hat routine. So our former Prime uh, Minister, yes. John Key, mm-hmm. was very keen on metaphorical hats. As far as where we he actually doesn't wear hats at all. You never but, seen him wearing one. But no. he would claim that when he made a statement in the House He was making that statement as, say, the Minister for Tourism and not the Prime Minister. Because it turns out that actually the rules for disclosure differ between, say, a Prime Minister and a Minister. And so John Key would keep on changing hats metaphorically whenever he was asked questions, to then be able to go, well, actually, no, I didn't say that as Prime Minister. I didn't say that as Minister of Tourism. So you can't request information in that way. You have to request it in another. And you can kind of imagine the situation of, you know, I'm a a minister in the Saudi Arabian government, but I've taken my metaphorical hat off, and I'm meeting Mr. X, the mysterious funder of Operation Y. Without my hat on, simply as a private citizen who, in my day job, help runs a country, but at night my life is my own.
0: Mm. Um, so further down the introductory chapter, we find this belated and still fledgling American movement toward transparency regarding nine eleven is unquestionably laudable. It is also, however, insufficient. The main contention of this article is that international law and international political institutions have a vital role to play in ensuring that the case of 9-11 is fully and objectively investigated. Not sure about the word fledgling in that paragraph. Yeah,
1: I mean, this was published in 2017. So we're looking at, what, 16 years after the event? Now, Hmm. admittedly, as we've discussed on this podcast, the 9-11 truth movement itself... Doesn't really appear until about three or four years after the event. So maybe 9 11 truth has been around for only about 12 years at this point. But a theory which is 12 years old and apparently is vital to be reinvestigated doesn't appear to be fledgling in 2017.
0: Hmm. But anyway, that, that sort of rounds out the introduction section, and she she finishes by basically, as as a good lawyer, um, her next step is to establish precedent. Um, She says, uh, I'll suggest that the first step in trying to break the 9-11 paralysis is to recognize that international law and political institutions have long been concerned with the danger of nation-states committing false flags in order to both gain domestic political advantage and or to justify or prepare for international war. To portions of this unsavory history, I now turn. You dig into section two, why it is rational to care. Um, And basically, the entirety of section two is... Uh, Can be summed up as false flags happen.
1: Also, Um, and I know mm. this is actually probably not the point Mm. of this, but it's a very loyally thing, lawyer, lawyerly thing to say, why is it rational to care? Mm. If this was a philosophy, say, why is it ethical to care? But
0: fair enough. So section two is in, in three subsections. Um, the first section is about false flags in Africa. It's entitled Africa's False Flag Education. And I want to point um, out,
1: this is not in the preprint of the article that she initially hosted on the AUT repository. So this was obviously a section that was added in probably by request
0: of a reviewer at the journal. Mm. But nevertheless, I, th- this section is quite interesting because, I mean, Africa is quite a big gap in my knowledge in general, but particularly when it comes to conspiracy theories. And um, and so this section talks about various false flag um, events that occurred in um, South Africa, in apartheid mm-hmm. South Africa. Apparently, there are numerous incidents of police or other national forces Um performing false flag attacks to discredit the ANC. Um, and apparently in other countries in Africa, um, where, where things are a little more uh, 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 less stable, I suppose, um, there are numerous instances of um, African governments performing false flag attacks. Um, and uh, there was, it's actually quite an interesting read, really. It's, it's always nice to see something that I, to get a bit more education on something I don't know anything about. Um, but then Section B. Section B is a bunch of familiar faces, isn't it? Well, actually, it's, a, it's two familiar faces and, and another new one, to me, at least.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the first example that she puts forward is a false flag event in Manchuria. So back in 1931, Japan invaded Manchuria after the explosive sabotage of a railway line, which was blamed at the time on Chinese dissidents. It now looks through the lens of history as if the Japanese enacted the event to then justify the invasion.
0: Mm. Um, The next false flag she looks at is the Glyvitz incident, which is one we have looked at before. In fact, that that was actually part of our false flag series that we did a while ago. So this one was episode 149 of our podcast. Um, Nearly 50
1: episodes ago.
0: Oh, yeah, a long, long time ago. Um, so the short version of the Gleiwitz incident, if you don't remember back that far, is that in 1939, Nazi Germany uh, staged an attack on a German radio station near what was at the time the border with Poland and blamed it on Polish saboteurs as a pretext for invading Poland. And they you know, they, they went as far as, to, as I recall, they... Um, they took a, a Polish sort of partisan who they had prisoner, um, killed him, and then sort of shot his body with, bullet, with bullets and left him outside. So it would look here as though he'd been killed in the attack and so on and so forth. Um, but it was 100% false flag. And then the last one, last what she talks about, is the Reichstag fire. Now, we've talked about this several times. My... My my understanding, the last I heard, was that it was still a little bit up in the air, it's, there's, there's definitely no question that the Nazi party capitalized on the Reichstag fire um, to a great extent, but last I heard it was kind of uncertain as to whether they had actually started the fire or communists had and they took advantage of it, whereas she is quite, she, she claims quite definitively that the Nazis definitely started the Reichstag fire.
1: Now, for those of you who don't know about the Reichstag fire, that was the fire that occurred in Germany prior to World War Two, which was blamed on the communists and was used by the Nazi party to basically expel the communists, the opposition, from the, about, say, the Bundaberg, because I'm thinking about, G- about ginger beer, from mm. the German parliament at the time. Now, at the, just afterwards, people said, oh, that was definitely a false flag event. The Nazis basically started the fire and used that as a pretext for getting rid of the communists. Most historians now think that actually the fire was probably an accident, and then the Nazis used the Communists as convenient patsies, because by blaming the Communists, it allowed them to achieve the thing they really wanted, which was control of Parliament.
0: Mm. So, I mean, it's certainly false flag-esque, no matter which way it went. It's false Mm. flag-adjacent. And then finally, uh, subsection C of chapter 2 is Operation Northwoods in the Larger Historical Context. Um, and so again, Operation Northwoods. We we mentioned it briefly in episode one hundred and thirteen. This was the
1: this was the posited plan to invade mm, Cuba, whilst also yes. setting up justifications for Americans to think that Cuba had actually started the hostilities.
0: Mm. And so so we, we all we went into it in more detail in episode two hundred and forty four, which is looking basically we looked at Cuba and we looked at a couple of different operations that had been proposed and and in some cases partially enacted around Cuba, Uh, Operation Northwoods was basically 100% false flags. There's no doubt about that. It was plans for all sorts of um, acts of of sabotage, what have you, in Cuba, I think, mostly. But Um,
1: there's a notable problem with using Operation Northwoods as an example, because whilst these were planned false flags, they were false flags that were never executed.
0: No. So uh, President Kennedy, once the plans were um, suggested to him, basically nixed the whole affair, said, not going to happen, and um, none of them actually occurred. But the, the, the plans were for false flags to be blamed on, to, to sort of try and stoke a revolution in Cuba, to um, suggest that Cuba was a, genu- a threat to Um, drum up sort of international support for some sort of intervention in Cuba and what have you and I mean I I don't think I, I think it I think it does suit her purposes fairly well because she wants to say in this chapter that basically a false flags occur which they definitely do we've talked about a whole bunch of them in this in this podcast and b false flags are something that the American government has thought about before, maybe not, you know, she, she isn't, isn't, doesn't claim right then and there that it's a thing they've definitely done, but it is a thing they've definitely thought about doing. Yes, um, it is
1: very much a case of, look, there's a history of false flags, and there's also a history of people wanting to commit false flags. So, by extension... Why not consider that 9-11, an extraordinary event, might be one of those false flags, in the Mm. kind of loose definition that she uses in footnote 9
0: Um, So she says, Manchuria, the Reichstag fire and the Gleivitz incident were all undisputed, fully executed false flags, but none of them resulted in mass or even many casualties Northwoods, on the other hand, gets us far closer to 9-11 in terms of a historical precedent, as it would have involved multiple theatres of operation and hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of innocent victims. Moreover, when set within the context of two larger and closely related categories of state malfeasance, namely false flags used for domestic purposes and false pretenses for interstate war not involving the use of false flags, the 9-11 false flag scenario becomes scarily thinkable and, if you will, speakable. Mm, and she goes on to talk speakable. about Operation Gladio, or Gladio, which is not a name I recall, but it sounds like something we should have mentioned before. Have we? Was that familiar to you? So it has come up
1: tangentially in previous episodes. So Gladio is a operation that occurred both ju- well, actually, it comes out of an operation during World War II, where the Allies were setting up resistance cells across Europe. And then after World War II, with the fear that the Soviets were going to engage in a massive land grab in Western Europe, the Allies basically set up a whole bunch of resistance cells all over Europe to ensure that there would be small cells that could operate independently to push back against communism if it reared its ugly heads in their lovely Western democracies. And Gladio basically ran up until the 90s, at which point it officially ceased, although there are certain conspiracy theories that certain terrorist activities going on within the EU to this day, including separatist movements throughout Europe, are actually all part of ongoing
0: Operation Gladio movements. Mm. Um, so here a of it reads... We have strong evidence that during the Cold War, the U.S. government, acting through NATO, orchestrated mass casualty, false flag terrorism against the civilian populations of Western Europe for the purpose of discrediting the West European left. The history of this disgraceful episode is not widely known in the West, yet it is indeed very real. In the early stages of the Cold War, NATO and the governments of various West European countries arranged for the formation of a clandestine network of resistance fighters that were intended to be activated to fight against the Soviets in the event they invaded and occupied Western Europe. This project was codenamed Operation Gladio. The backbone of the Gladio network were far-right and neo-Nazi groups working in coordination with carefully compartmentalized sections of the Western security and intelligence services. Although the Soviets never invaded Western Europe, NATO nonetheless activated this network beginning in the late 1960s to commit political assassinations and mass atrocity terror attacks that were blamed on West European communists. In 1990, following a series of public revelations by various high-level European officials, the European Parliament alarmingly passed a resolution condemning Gladio in the strongest possible language for its evasion of all democratic controls, its illegal interference in the internal political affairs of EU member states, and its involvement in serious cases of terrorism and crime. US military personnel and NATO were explicitly singled out and condemned for their involvement in the Gladio network.
1: Now it's important to note that She is claiming that Operation Gladio was largely made up of neo-Nazis and the far right. That is a very contentious uh, claim, to say at least, and this is in part because of her reliance on particular sources, in particular Gansler, which is one of her primary sources for this claim. Many people dispute this claim. This is taken to be a very contentious characterization of what the Gladio network was made up of, Most historians take it that Gladio was made up of local resistance cells, and so in some situations where the resistance cells were far-right and opposed to communism, there were in fact Nazis and neo-Nazis involved, but it certainly wasn't the backbone of the Gladio network. It was simply some cells. They were using existing resistance towards communists, and sometimes having to make devil's bargains at the same time.
0: Mm. Um, and then she goes on to mention the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which you've talked about before, which provided a, a pretext for the Vietnam War, and um, America, the U.S.'s lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which, of course, was used as a pretext for the Second Iraq War. Um, she finishes out... Putting all these pieces together, what emerges is a disquieting mosaic showing the very real possibility of a mass casualty false flag attack being executed to justify international war. To dismiss this this possibility out of hand and to concomitantly belittle the need for the international community to investigate it not only reflects a profound lack of imagination, it reflects a rather profound degree of irrationality. Through an appeal to history regarding the reality of past false flag attacks and mass casualty state terror, I have tried to pry open the mental space needed for scholars and statesmen to begin to engage the reality of false flag attacks used for egregious purposes. Once we become so engaged, the options for action going forward are clear, as set forth below. That uh, a pr- profound degree of irrationality. What that, that them's fighting words.
1: They yeah, are, especially for this podcast, because you know mm. we deal in warrant here at the podcast as guide to the conspiracy. We need, we need more than just mere possibility.
0: Mm. So yes, you you certainly can't deny the possibility of any particular false flag event, but um, that's that's I I would say is not a particularly high bar. Um, for justifying actually going back and and investigating stuff that has already been investigated, or or indeed believing in it. um, And, of course,
1: that's part of the problem with this paper, as we're going to see. She is taking it that because there is controversy held by some people about the official theory of 9-11, then it's a controversial topic, and ipso facto, we need to reinvestigate it. What she isn't talking about is the investigations that already exist, and are the reasons why maybe bodies like the UN don't want to go back and look at it, because it turns out they think the answer is already there.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, earlier in the introductory paragraph, she sort of, she, she tries to sort of cast doubt upon the official version but um, doesn't really go any further than uh, citing things like that europhysics paper that um, that casts doubt on it. Um, but so this this leads into section three how we might now care um, and so th- this is this is where the actual international law comes into things um, goes into the legal arguments that the UN has the ability to investigate 911. Um, she's, as she says, the world community acting through the United Nations has the power and the right to investigate the cause of 9-11 and come to a judgment regarding it. Now, this is not a law podcast. I am not a lawyer. I'm um, also not a lawyer. Uh, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm quite happy to take her word for it. Um, she lays out a bunch of precedent and, and quotes a bunch of people who've talked about the things that the UN can and can't do and how the UN you know, w- w- will... Um, Act in terms of uh, self-defense or not, as to whether it thinks the things are justified or whether things to be condemned or, or what, and so on. But again, it all kind of comes down to that that, that big if again. If 9-11 was a false flag, and therefore the U.S. war on terror was not justified by self-defense, then yes, Uh, according to the the argument she sets out here, the U.N. would be able to reject the self-defense claim, uh, call on the U.S. to cease its hostilities, and would have grounds to... um, uh, uh, Actually, I was going to say do another investigation, but this is post-the investigation, isn't it? It's assuming the investigation shows it's a false flag. Um, So yes, she sort of wants to say that the U.N. could very definitely have a role in um, what should happen. But the problem
1: here is that the UN's probably not going to get involved because they consider the case to have already been satisfactorily investigated. So I think it's quite useful here to talk about this notion of controversy, because the entire paper rests upon the idea that because there's a controversy about 9-11, this controversy is non-trivial and thus needs to be resolved. So we should probably talk about the idea that there are trivial differences and non-trivial differences. So a trivial distinction, you might say that a 910-year-old coin is older than a 900-year-old coin. And that is a, that's a trivial distinction, because yes, it's true, one coin is 10 years older than the other, but they're both pretty old, so... When when people say, oh, but this this coin is older in case of, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a little bit older, but it's not particularly important, is it? Now, of course, this distinction might become non-trivial if it turns out that you're using the coin to, say, prove when someone came to live at a place or a treasure belonging to a particular person. But by itself, a 10-year difference for a 900-year-old coin, pretty trivial distinction. But a non-trivial distinction would be declaring that, look, there's been embezzlement of the patron monies, the podcasters Guide to the Conspiracy, and either M embezzled the monies or Josh embezzled the monies. And that's a non-trivial distinction, because if one of us did embezzle the money, the other didn't, and there are legal repercussions to embezzling things. So it's it's pretty important to work out whether Josh or myself Engage in embezzling the vast sums of money we have stored in giant coffers around the land, which makes up all the monies we've taken from our patrons. And the reason the why... Mistakes were made. That's all I can say. The money was just resting in Josh's account. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. And so in the same respect, you have trivial and non-trivial distinctions. You can have non-trivial and trivial con- controversies. It turns out that it's controversial that I'm a vegan who doesn't like mushrooms. People's kind of they go what as if it's the most important thing I've I- ever said. But it's actually, it's kind of trivial in the grand scheme of things because most people have foodstuffs they don't like, which people find to be surprising. But you can also have controversies which are non-trivial. So when investigating a murder it's non-trivial to seriously consider a subset of the range of suspects you have because it's important to make decisions as to who you're going to spend time on. And, of course, it's controversial to spend time on one suspect when you should be investigating another. And so I take it that Amy Baker Benjamin thinks that the 9-11 investigation and the fact there's a controversy – is a non-trivial controversy in her eyes. She says, look, there are people having these discussions, these discussions are important, it indicates things up for debate, so we really need to sort this out. Except that a lot of other people take the controversy to be a trivial one, in the same way the Shakespeare authorship controversy is trivial. Yes, some people think there's something odd about the official theory, in the same respect that some people think that William Shakespeare was not Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon, but those people are basically confused as to how serious this controversy actually is. It's a trivial one, because actually most people just don't care, because most people accept one explanation over the other.
0: Mm. Um, And all of this leads us to her chapter four, section four. Like, I keep calling it chapter four. You what? You keep calling these sections
1: chapters.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just used to chapters and books. But you don't Um, even read books. I I, I have read books. When was the last time you read a book? Well, it's funny you should say that because this is the one time of year when I do actually read books when I'm away on holiday with with no PlayStation to keep me occupied. So I, I've read books as recently as a week ago. How about that? Stick that in your pipe and smoke it.
1: I will. In fact, if you actually mm. send me the book, I'll grind it up and turn it into the finest literary tobacco that the world has ever seen.
0: Indeed. Uh, anyway, section slash chapter four conclusion um, is actually short enough to read the whole thing out um, in one go, so I will. <clears throat> This article has not attempted to litigate the case of 9-11, rather it has sought to show that this very special case merits an objective and independent investigation by the foremost political body of the international community, the United Nations. Consider for one moment what the world would look like were the international community to arrive at a convincing judgment on 9-11. If the official account were confirmed, much of the political toxin injected by the event into the Western body politic would likely drain away. If the official account were falsified and the event adjudged a false flag attack by a transnational criminal cabal, several things would happen. The war on terror would come to an immediate halt. Indictments would be issued and criminal trials held until justice was served. Forgiveness of the Muslim world would be sought and forgiveness would be extended to any Muslims who struck in terror against the West and backlash against the initial fraudulent terrorism of 9-11. Truth and reconciliation a la South Africa would become not only thinkable but realistically possible and not an ounce of additional police state control of innocent citizens anywhere in the world would be needed in order to achieve these worthwhile goals. Either way, on either outcome, the world would be a better place. A genuine international investigation of a horrific and hugely important event is within our power. Mercifully, we have nothing to lose. Um, And again, there's quite a lot going on there. It's a very rosy, a very hopeful um, view of what would happen if there were to be such a thing. I mean, there's this idea of the UN arriving at a convincing judgment on 9-11. I I would argue that there are people, if not the majority of people, on the 9-11 truth um, uh, movement um, who would not accept a judgment from the UN if it found in favour of the official version, no matter how convincing it was.
1: I mean, I wouldn't go to say a majority, but yes, there is going to be a certain bunch of people in the 9-11 truth community who are going to go, but yeah, but you do know the UN is in on it. And of course, an awful lot rests here on what conclusion the UN makes. I'd be quite curious to know what Amy Baker Benjamin's response would be if the UN investigated or reinvestigated 9-11 and said, actually, no, America was right the first time. It was Al-Qaeda and a plot to attack the US. The US was in no way involved. Would you think, oh, well, you know, it's still... But there are still people who disagree. We might need a re reinvestigation
0: mm. And, yeah, I mean, it, the whole thing seems a little bit weird because certainly all the... Uh, conspiracy-minded folk who we look at tend to view the UN as one of the bad guys. They're part of the New World Order. They're the ones with their Agenda 21. And what's the new one? Agenda something else?
1: I know yes. there's a new Agenda. Yeah. No, I mean, there's always, there's always there, agendas there's a bunch of agenda on. And it is interesting so, yeah. that the UN is often taken to be a threat to both the left and the right. So the right takes it that the UN comes in and destroys conservatism and thus is a threat to traditional family values. And left-wing conspiracy theorists take it that the UN is a globalist organisation which is seeking to bring about uh, capitalist control of the world, so it's motivated by entirely the wrong kind of ideology. And so people on both sides of the spectrum tend to look askance at the UN, and in part for good reason, because when you look at the way the UN operates, It's a a good system, but it's not a perfect system. And the imperfections in that system sometimes mean some fairly disastrous results occur because of the way it's designed to appease everyone and please no one.
0: Mm. Um. And, I mean, yes, also the idea that um, if the UN were to rule against the US, the war on terror would come to an immediate halt. I mean, the US... Does Notoriously not is very, very,
1: very keen to take UN rul- rulings on everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but putting aside um, the, the the fairly rose-tinted uh, view of the consequences of, of such an investigation, I'm not quite sure what she was getting at with um, that bit about not an ounce of additional police state control of innocent citizens would be needed. Is is that a dig at the Patriot Act? Well, I
1: suppose it's it's a dig generally at the way in which nine eleven was used as a rationale to curb civil liberties, in the same way that the seven seven attacks in the UK were used as a justification for the expansion of the surveillance state in the United Kingdom. nine eleven and events like that have been used to bring around. I wouldn't say draconian controls, but certainly quite robust controls on what people can do. In the same respect, we've seen a lot of conspiracy theories about the rationale behind the pandemic, based upon the notion that this is precisely what big government wants to do. It wants to shackle its citizens whenever possible. And sometimes that's probably true. Governments do sometimes look to expand their powers using emergencies like this. But that doesn't tell you that they create the emergencies to make the shackles larger, it sometimes just shows that people in positions of power will opportunistically use an event to then go, oh, that power grab I wanted to do, I finally have a rationale to do it myself. I mean, we saw that with the with the results of the Christchurch earthquakes here, with National basically grabbing power from a whole bunch of ca- ca- councils in the South uh, South Island. And going, oh, oh, the earthquake gives us a rationale to seize control of councils that we don't
0: like. Mm. Um, but at any rate, as as a as a, as an article as its whole, as uh, as a whole, as an argument, as a whole, um, it still comes back to the same stuff we've already talked about. This this really only makes sense if you're already a nine eleven truther. Um, there's only a clear need for. A conclusive investigation into this if you think the the existing investigations weren't conclusive, or if you don't like the conclusions that they came to. And it still comes back to that same sort of Pascal's wager thing, this kind of argument could be used to argue for the reinvestigation of basically anything significant ever, um, and it doesn't seem that 9-11 um, is, is special in that regard. No,
1: no, it does seem. It does seem that this is a argument based upon a preordained conclusion that we must reinvestigate nine eleven, rather than an argument providing us with a good rationale to engage in that investigation. Hmm. And the thing is, um, there probably are good arguments to be made for further investigation of the nine eleven event. This is simply not a good example of that kind of argument.
0: Mm. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it, it does come across, I guess, basically as question begging, I suppose. Yeah. That's, yeah. That seems it's the to kind be the of thing key, that the key would not get
1: through a philosophy journal, and as I said at the top of the show, it's in a low-ranked international law journal, which I think might speak to the calibre of the argument in the paper. All that being mm. said, I don't know how many other journals she submitted it to, so I might be talking out of my ass, as our American friends say. They do.
0: Um, so I think that's, I think that's uh, all we have to say about that particular paper, um, which means that's all we have to say for this particular episode. Have you anything to... To say before we go out and you use your magical box to play the going outy music?
1: Well, I'm just going to say that as usual, there'd be a patron bonus episode accompanying this episode. So if you are a patron, you've got more stuff to listen to. And if you're not a patron, well, then you have the opportunity to become one for at least a dollar a month. That's a dollar US. That gets you access to all of the additional content that the podcast provides. If you want a special shout-out, it costs you $3. There's even more tiers for producers and executive producer roles if you are so inclined. And in our bonus episode, we're basically going to talk about January 6th and some of the fallout from what happened after the storming of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. So, patrons, stick around for that.
0: Hmm. Uh, But everyone else, um, I I, I guess there's nothing more to say but uh, listen to us for next time. Do we know when next time is going to be? Are your plans still very much up in the air?
1: They are very much in flux. So I'm assuming Hmm. at this stage that I'll still be here in Auckland next week and the week after. So next week we might have a bring along a conspiracy or, as I call it, what the conspiracy uh, to excite and hopefully please Josh. Spectacular.
0: Oh, well, until then, I don't believe there's anything more to do uh, than simply say goodbye.
1: Toodly pip. Oops, <laughs> sorry. She's I just censored myself there. <laughs> the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. Mr. X. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, it's just a step to the left.